Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey, everyone. Season four of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, bringing you evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your nutrition game to the next level. I am excited, folks, to be talking mixed martial arts today with none other than UFC's Performance Institute's very own Dr. Reed Real is on the podcast. Reed is the Performance Nutrition Manager at UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai, China. He previously worked as a senior scientist with the Gatorade Sports Science Institute and was the lead dietitian for the Australian Olympic combat sport athletes in the 2016 Rio Olympics. Reed's research projects focus on weight cutting techniques, body composition, and pragmatic approaches to working with elite combat sport athletes. Reed also holds a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and took home the gold medal in the heavyweight division at the 2016 Abu Dhabi Pro International Trials. In this episode, Reed's going to share his research and insights on such things as the physical demands of mixed martial arts, performance testing at the elite level in the UFC, and of course his research on resting metabolic rate, RMR, in adolescent athletes and what that means for their fueling practices. Reed also talks about the differences between academy versus professional MMA fighters before diving into the science of weight cutting and how you can manipulate body composition. If you're interested in more on this topic, then definitely circle back to Season 3, Episode 12 with Dr. Corey Peacock, PhD, on this same topic. Terrific, this episode is sponsored by my book, Peak. Proud to announce 12 months in a row as a number one bestseller on Audible and Amazon. A recent review from Germany reads, I've got most of the books about running and sports performance slash recovery in English here on Amazon. Very few have got the relevant information here contained. One of my all-time favorites. Thanks for the feedback, JAM. Much appreciated. And once again, before we get started... We will be releasing the PEAK online course this fall for strength coaches, nutritionists, practitioners, and anyone who wants to upgrade their performance nutrition skills and earn CE credits along the way as well. You can sign up for the pre-sale list at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org and be the first to hear when it drops as well as get a nice discount. All right, let's do this season four, episode 13 with Dr. Reed Real. Reed, thanks so much for taking the time today. No problem. Thanks for the invite, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Listen, I think you know, I'd love to start with uh, talking about your your background and you know, in the research and as a practitioner and that journey to where you're at today with the UFC. Sure. Yeah. So, um, all right. I mean, how far do we go back in a background? But uh, I, I guess I'll just give a quick overview of kind of my um my undergrad and my master's before the PhD work, which is probably what we really want to get into. So uh, my undergrad was um, a degree called health science at Deakin University, uh, where I majored in exercise science and, and nutrition and also biochemistry. Um, following that, I did a master's in dietetics, uh, where, where where I could then 
register as an accredited practicing dietitian in Australia, which is similar to a registered dietitian in the US. Um, and, and I worked for, worked for 18 months prior to uh, starting my PhD, which is where things kind of got interesting. So my PhD was based at the Australian Institute of Sport, which is like our Olympic training center, so to speak. Um, and my PhD focused on uh, acute weight manipulation in Olympic combat sports. So essentially weight cutting in Olympic combat sports. Um, and so I did that for about three, three and a half years. Um, and then following my PhD, uh, I secured a job with Gatorade Sports Science Institute in the US um, um, at IMG Academy in Florida. So I relocated from Australia to the US uh, where I worked as a senior scientist with, with Gatorade Sports Science Institute. Um, and so my research there focused more on team sports, um, US team sports, and, and we're starting to just some of the papers are coming out now. Um, but, but we had one recently looking at uh, resting metabolic rate in adolescent athletes. We've got a few in our sleep. Um, I believe one has just been published and, and there's more to come looking at sleep. Um, and then I worked with Gatorade for, for two years and then was fortunate enough to, uh, th throughout that time, make some connections um, with, uh, with the UFC Performance Institute in Vegas. Um, obviously, my PhD looking at weight cutting in combat sports um, lends itself well uh, to um, not just Olympic combat sports, but MMA and other combat sports. So kind of got the introductions to the guys at the UFCPI. Um, and then when they were setting up in Shanghai, they actually reached out to me um, and, and kind of headhunted me for the position to, to be the nutrition lead out in Shanghai. So after two years in the US, I relocated uh, to, to Shanghai, um, where I've been for a year now, um, or just over a year, minus the, the COVID situation. So, so I haven't been there for the past kind of four months. Um, but yeah, started in, in March last year. And I should just kind of say throughout this whole time, um, you know, my, my whole life I've been an avid martial arts practitioner um, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu specifically um, kind of obsessed with BJJ for the past 15 years or so. So um, that, that's kind of what tied into my uh, PhD work and, and the reason why I was so passionate about combat sports. So um, yeah, pretty much Jiu-Jitsu nerd, dietitian, PhD looking at uh, weight cutting, Gatorade for two years and, and now fortunate enough to be working with the UFC in Shanghai. That's tremendous. And, you know, always amazing when, when experts have not only the, the passion and the knowledge for, for a topic or sport, but also we're an athlete in that sport themselves, which gives that extra lens. And if we talk about MMA fighters, combat sports, I mean, you know, so many factors to consider in, a, in, a, in a, the physical demands and physical preparation of a, of a sport like that. Can you walk us through you know, what some of those physical demands are for MMA fighters and the considerations for you as a performance nutritionist? Yeah, um, so, so like the, the, the physical demands, so first of all, mixed martial arts um, combines like all, all the different martial arts, um, striking and grappling, so predominantly like boxing, kickboxing or Muay Thai and then wrestling and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So, so it's really dynamic and really varied. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, um, not only kind of explosive movements, but also a lot of isometric movements going on. Um, and for those who, who are unaware, uh, UFC and, and MMA in general kind of follows this this kind of um, structure with the with the competition format, whereby there's three five minute rounds with one minute in between, um, and then for bigger fights or championship fights, it's commonly five five minute rounds. So it's you know it, it is an aerobic sport um, made up of large chunks of kind of glycolytic anaerobic um, efforts. So, you know, it's, it's quite challenging to, cha to train for, um, and fighters never quite know the way a fight's going to go. Um, so they need to be, you know, really strong, really explosive, but also super fit both aerobically and anaerobically. Um, and, and so then in, in terms of nutrition, you know, we're, we're trying to fuel all of these different kinds of 
um, you know, efforts throughout competition and throughout training, but also um, manipulate body composition throughout. So there's chronic um, body composition manipulations, just looking at muscle gain and, and fat loss. Um, but then also the, the kind of the thing that differentiates combat sports and weight category sports from all the rest is the um, the, uh, the the requirement to make weight, which is uh, quite nuanced and, and requires a real pragmatic approach because you know, often to make weight, we're doing things which might be considered suboptimal um, outside of the weight-making context. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, it, it's quite challenging for new dietitians and new nutritionists who are, you know, used to working with sports where it's all about staying well-hydrated and well-fueled and, you know, we don't want to lose weight too fast and we want to do everything optimally to keep the athlete as healthy as possible throughout the whole time. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time, it's, it's not possible um, given the other uh, pressures on the athlete to make weight and, and such. Absolutely. And I definitely want to dive into the making weight portion. Obviously, you guys are operating on such a knife's edge with being able to f- to tread that line between body composition and being able to perform and recover. And when we talk about those, um, you know, being able to fuel an athlete, you know, your work that you've done talking about the resting metabolic rate in adolescent athletes, we see the popularity of MMAs massively on the rise around the world. Canada being one place in particular that it's definitely really popular. Um, when we're looking at RMR and adolescence, what are some of the findings that you uncovered in, in doing some work there and as well as with your, you know, adult professional fighters? Yeah. So, so basically in a nutshell, what we found with um, the, the studies that we did at, uh, with GSSI with, with adolescent athletes was that the vast majority of existing equations, um, you know, prediction equations for RMR are not appropriate for adolescent athletes and they're underestimating um, RMR by about 10%, I think was, was the kind of, kind of rough average mm-hmm. between the equations. Um, and, and, uh, and, and when you combine, um, you know, the, the, the training loads of adolescent athletes with the requirements for growth, um, and then potentially the prescription of nutrition using equations, um, that, uh, that, that are suboptimal, you know, it kind of lends itself to issues surrounding, uh, poor energy availability, um, and, 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 and things like this. And then in terms of adult populations, um, you know, certainly, uh, and, and it's interesting because now that I work in China, you know, it's kind of a different cohort to kind of your typical MMA athlete, which is generally from more Western countries or Westernized countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but but like in, in Western countries, you'll often find these uh, athletes that are chronically um, existing in states of low energy availability and, and energy de- deficits. So, you know, it's like this whole um, kind of need to uh, maintain a, a lean, mean physique and, and aim for lower and lower um, weight divisions because everyone thinks they're getting a performance benefit from it. Um, you end up with athletes that are, you know, putting their bodies through the absolute uh, ringer in terms of their training, um, but they're also in an energy deficit for eight, 12 weeks on end. Um, and, you know, we, we know from some of the work in other sports that this, you know, is is not good for health and performance and, mm-hmm. um, you know, profiles and things like this. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big problem in, in MMA. Um, however, interestingly, it's less of a problem I've noticed in China. Like they have less of a, um, Interesting. kind of appreciation for, of, of, of this stuff. And, uh, in terms of, um, kind of long-term, um, adherence to nutrition programs and this sort of stuff. So in China, it's, it's kind of more like the athletes do what they do, you know, for the vast majority of the time. And they don't really think about um, the need to make weight until two or three weeks before the fight, then they just starve themselves. So they're probably more aggressive in the acute stage, um, but less uh, aggressive in the, in the chronic stage. Um, 
which, you know, who, who knows what's worse? Because, like, if we're using that example, the Chinese athletes aren't in these energy deficits for 12 weeks on end. Um, so, you know, maybe they're avoiding that damage um, at the expense of, uh, you know, a harder weight cut. But, um, you know, I think the jury's still out on what's worse. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I was going to say what, uh, you know, the lesser of two evils there, which one might be uh, um, the, the better route to go. And, Reed, if we talk about screening for fighters, you know, testing, things that you take into consideration, obviously, you know, when you're at the UFC Performance Institute, but even maybe some comments on coaches training fighters and, and their local facilities and what might be available to them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I mean, I'm in Shanghai. We do a whole variety of tests, you know, um, kind of physical performance tests, which I think is not what you're alluding to. But we'll get into the nutrition stuff in, in more detail. But the physical performance tests are kind of all the standard ones you would imagine. We do like vo two maxes and um, a- anaerobic, um, you know, three minute glycolytic bike tests and stuff like this, as well as uh, I was mentioning mid thigh pull and um, counter movement jumps and 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 all this sort. Of sort of stuff to just to get a profile of the athlete but in terms of kind of my department and what we focus on um the big ones we use is is a dexa scanner which is you know widely available around the world now and um, just to get an idea of body composition and and more specifically our weight division fit so we can kind of you know there's no way to fully determine the optimal fat-free mass for a particular weight division but we think we've got a pretty good idea based on kind of some sound theory as well as what we see some of the high-level performers, um, you know, presenting with. And so we can tell from after doing a DEXA body composition scan on an athlete whether they're fighting in the quote-unquote uh, right weight division. Um, and, and and if they're not, um, either, you know, they're, they're cutting too much weight and, and they could, could potentially go up a weight division and maybe perform better, and there's plenty of examples in the UFC of athletes who have done this, um, or, or conversely, which is more commonly the case, um, particularly in China, it's like these athletes could go down a weight division. You know, mm-hmm. um, we, we give them a body composition scan. We realize, realize that, you know, they've got fat-free mass commensurate with uh, the weight division below, and they're walking around just a little bit soft, you know, a little bit too much body fat for that weight division. Um, and then we can get some good numbers on whether they can actually move down or not. So we certainly use DEXA. I would say that's the most common measurement um, that we make use of, but we also do a lot of uh, RMR measurements. Um, um, and the RMR stuff is super interesting in terms of how much it changes what we do. I would say definitely not as much as the DEXA and, um, you know, it's more out of interest, but there are certainly timely times where, you know, again, we've got an athlete who the DEXA might say that they can potentially go down a weight division, but they're right on a knife's edge. You know, it's like either they're in they're in the correct weight division, but maybe could put on a little bit of muscle or we could drop them down a weight division. We do an RMR. We find they've already got a suppressed RMR. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then, you know, upon further uh, investigation, maybe they've already been starving themselves for a few weeks or months um, and they've struggled to lose weight in the past. So, you know, that's kind of some good, um, it's kind of objective and subjective um, information information that can help, help dictate whether we would go down or not. Um, so we routinely do RMRs. In terms of coaches um, working with fighters, I really think it's worth getting a DEXA scan done at least like, you know, once a year or something like this. And, and you know, once you've got the the body composition um, determined for an athlete, you can then go by the, the, the number on the scales in terms of, you know, are they losing body weight or not? That's fine. But I think, um, you know, uh, in the beginning, getting an idea of their, their body composition so you can um, identify that weight division fit. You know, and then once you've identified whether 
you know, they're in the ballpark of the right weight division. Maybe you don't need to get another DEXA um, unless they put on or lose significant muscle mass, which can often be determined just by looking at the athlete or by, uh, you know, assessing strength in the gym and that sort of stuff. So I'd certainly encourage coaches to, to do that. And then in terms of kind of more s- soft um, assessments, I guess, you know, general dietetic and nutrition um, assessment, just asking them about, uh, you know, their, their, their general diet, um, weight changes in the past, um, also getting an idea of, you know, their kind of psychological makeup. Like some athletes really love the challenge of, you know, weighing everything and stacking the numbers up and getting it all down pat. And, and these guys, you know, you can really challenge them with following a plan for a long period of time and, and you know, maybe pushing the envelope a little bit in terms of weight division fit. But then other people, you know, we, we all know these people that are just like they're superstar athletes, but they don't really want to think about anything else. They're not good at, um, you know, following plans and this sort of stuff. So, you know, getting an idea of, um, kind of the psychology or the, um, I guess, the psychological hardiness of an athlete or their ability to follow a plan for a long period of time and whether they could even, you know, um, kind of take up that challenge in terms of weight division fits um, or, or, sorry, weight division changes is probably a good idea. But that's that stuff's a, a lot less tangible and requires, um, uh, you know, a bit of experience with athletes and their nutrition. But, I mean... <laughs> roundabout way to get to a short answer. I think a DEXA is, is a good start for um, for coaches and well worth the money. Yeah, it's interesting that sort of, you know, the mechanic versus the artist sort of approach of, you know, one athlete, you can give all the, the metrics and all the detail and they thrive off that and, and it really motivates them. And if you gave the same plan to another athlete, it would almost, you know, drive them crazy or, or lead to exaggerated stress responses and things like that. So that's really a great point there. And when, when you talk about RMR, is there a certain frequency that you would you know, use in a performance setting. And when we look at coaches in, in their local settings, some of these portable RMR devices, is, is there, um, are, are they an evidence-based uh, method to be using in those spaces as well? Yeah, to be honest, I'm not familiar with all of the different technologies that are coming out to measure RMR. The ones that I've had experience with are kind of like the more, I guess, um, higher-end ones. So yeah. like the... Uh, the uh, Cortex um, meta-analyzer, I believe it's called, is what we're using with UFC at the moment. In the past, um, with GSSI and, and uh, also with our AIS, we use a Cosmed metabolic cart, and, they, and these are all really great. I know there's like kind of handheld portable devices coming out now, um, and, you know, I would be very skeptical as to their validity. I know there was one, and I won't mention the name in case the manufacturers are listening and, and I get in trouble for it or whatever, but they, they claim it was, it was like a pen that you breathe into mm-hmm. and they say it can give you all this information. And, and when you're looking at it, you know, like it, it's, it's not bad for the RQ, um, just looking at, you know, the ratio of kind of fats to carbohydrates, but mm-hmm. in terms of an actual RMR, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. and obviously, yeah. And obviously standardization is a big deal with body composition and RMR measurement. You know, it's no good to say the pen is super portable, um, and then you pop it in somebody's mouth during the middle of the day after they've already trained. Like that's not going to give you any useful information. You want to know, you know, a true resting metabolic rate mm-hmm. first thing in the morning, fasted, rested, that that sort of thing. Hundred percent. And you know, if we shift gears here, Reed, and talk a bit about your philosophy, your process when it comes to working with a fighter. You know, you get a fighter in the in the institute, elite professional fighter. You know, what's the philosophy, or what are some of the first things you're you're thinking of when you're about to work with these types of athletes? Yeah, I mean, it's very different. Like the way we work in Shanghai compared to the way they work in Vegas and the way that we sometimes work in Shanghai when we get visiting fighters is is quite different because like in Shanghai, we have a, a full-time academy where we're essentially 100% responsible for these athletes' development. So it's probably more like the college setting in the US. 
Um, and so with the academy athletes, it's kind of a much more broader, not one size fits all. Like we certainly tailor it um, to the individuals, but you know, it's more bucketed into groups of, you know, um, people need to gain weight, people need to lose weight type thing. Like, like we bucket them into, into different approaches. So we might have 30 athletes and kind of five or six different quote unquote, quote, client types that we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with, with these guys, it's a much more broader brush stroke approach. Um, and we tend to be more conservative in the beginning until we know more about the athletes. Whereas when we're working with an individual, we've got a visiting high profile fighter, you know, everything's about super prescriptive, individualized, tailored to that specific athlete. So that's kind of, kind of, um, kind of top level. Um, and, and, and again, with the individuals, we can tailor it more to their personality, their experience, um, in, you know, weight cutting or, or nutrition in general. Um, other considerations is like, so, so, so that kind of gives us an idea about how we're going to pitch it, whether it's, um, you know, more individualized prescriptive versus more broad. Um, but, but then following on from that, in terms of working with fighters, you know, what are the priorities going to be? Well, is it about generally when you speak to fighters, have got fights coming up, right? Cause after fights, they all go missing and hit the buffet and <laughs> go out partying nice. for three weeks. And, and, and the last person they want to speak to is a nutritionist. Um, so, so generally, you're seeing these people when they've got a fight coming up in the next weeks or months. Um, and then it's all about, like, how far off are they from weight? And ideally, they're not in this, you know, disaster station where, you know, the whole fight camp is essentially a, a, a fat camp where their the number one priority is getting that weight down. Mm-hmm. So that's the not ideal situation. But it, it happens more often than not where, you know, you're just fueling them suboptimally and you're trying to make the best of a bad situation, but it's got to be done because they need to make weight um, versus you get a fighter who's, you know, well within striking distance of their weight. And then you can talk about, you know, okay, the nutrition approach is all about optimally fueling the athlete throughout the fight camp. And that's obviously a lot more fun um, and, and you're less of the bad guy, but um, you know, it's probably 50, <laughs> 50, whether it's fat camp or, or fueling in terms of where, where are we in, uh, in, in fight camp? Is it, you know, if we're three weeks before fight camp, uh, sorry, but before the fight, then it's probably targeting more that acute weight loss and the weight cutting considerations um, versus if we're further out, then again, it's more about fueling and maybe chronic body composition um, changes or, or, or just performance fueling requirements. And uh, yeah, and, and then of course, just to kind of put, put, put a bookend on this section, um, you know, how you work with a person, it's gonna be all about your previous experience working with that person. Um, nutrition's always about, you know, taking into consideration athlete habits and their beliefs around nutrition. Um, yeah, and uh, I think that kind of covers that. 100%. And, you know, with so many different um, disciplines within MMA, various fighters may be working more or less on various disciplines. You know, where's the evidence base at the moment in terms of the energy demands for a training week or, or the, you know, macronutrient requirements, whether it's, you know, carbohydrates, et cetera, for, for a professional fighter? Yeah, I mean, the evidence base isn't great in terms of actual fighting, I would say. It's, um, you know, we're more kind of making, I, I would say, very good educated guesses based on literature, um, which has looked at other sports. Um, and, and if we think of it as like, I mean, it's essentially like a strength and power sport with a large anaerobic as well as a, a, a aerobic, um, you know, requirement. So it's kind of it encompasses everything. Um but, but really, like the things that I'm thinking about with uh, with our guys, it's like number one, get energy right, and a close second is is get protein right. If we're getting energy and protein in the ballpark, you know, I think we're we're 
a, a long way towards um, you know getting it right. And then obviously what's left is uh, your kind of ratio of protein to fat. And really it's like taking this pragmatic approach with these guys. Generally it's about um, you know hit, hitting certain weight targets. And I really don't mind kind of the relative ratio of carbs to fat with these guys as long as it's all working. Like if they're training hard and they're feeling good and their weight's where it needs to be or it's trending in the direction that it needs to be and we're getting energy and protein, right? I really don't care whether it, you know, the remainder is 50-50 fat carbs, you know, 40-60, 70-30. Like once you're kind of getting mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to the extremes, um, th- th- then I would I would query it. And, and, and certainly if athletes are, you know, if we think that their um, energy intake and protein intake is where we want it to be, um, and they're not losing weight too fast and, and things like this, but they're complaining of fatigue um, and we've kind of ticked all the other boxes. This is where I would then certainly be trying to get more more carbohydrates in them. I would always lean more towards, you know, more carbohydrates than more fat for sure because obviously it's a, you know, glycolytic um, sport and the, and the energy demands are, are, are high and they're working at these high intensities. But again, if an athlete is eating a little bit more fat, then maybe the textbook would say is optimal, but they're feeling great, they're training hard, everything's good, you know, kind of if it ain't broke, don't fix it mm-hmm. um, with a lot of these guys. Awesome. And then, you know, Reed, when we get into this weight cutting time frame before a fight, obviously you've done a lot of work in this area and uh, a lot of different strategies that are used and a lot of old school strategies, hopefully dying out, but obviously I'm sure you see are still being used. Can you talk a little bit about that manipulating body composition and weight cutting in MMA? Sure. So, um, Maybe I'll, I'll touch on kind of our um, uh, kind of b- best practice guidelines that we use, and then maybe we can talk about where people go wrong. Um, so, so in terms of like the, the, the way to do it, and this is the way that I explain it to coaches and athletes, like I've given these presentations so many times, and this is kind of the way it always comes out. It's like you want to think about what is the body made up of, so what constitutes your body mass, um, and and specifically what constitutes your body mass that you can um, actually manipulate. So obviously like, uh, you know, skin and blood and all this stuff contributes to body mass as well, but we can't consciously um, manipulate it. The things that we're going to manipulate is essentially going to be body fat, muscle mass, um, body water, and then one that people often don't think about is gut content. Um, And then within body water, I would also kind of throw glycogen in there because as I'm sure most of your listeners are aware that you know, a large portion of uh, stored glycogen is um, is water. Mm-hmm. So, so then we want to think about, and this is what I talk to the coaches and athletes about, which of these can we manipulate short-term versus long-term? And so body fat and muscle mass, we can change. You can't get significant changes, certainly in less than a week. Um, and, you know, maybe several weeks. Even if you're absolutely starving yourself, what are you going to lose, you know, one to two kilos of fat in a week? potentially and in somebody who's already lean and on the back of a um you know a few weeks or months of dieting they're not even going to lose a kilogram of fat in a week which comes down to what's that equals like 150 grams of fat per day something like this whereas um whereas water you know we can shift you know three four five six seven percent of your body mass in a couple of hours um and you know like athletes particularly in team sports that train outside you know routinely do this in training sessions Mm -hmm. Uh, and and then in terms of gut content um, and this is the way I explain it to people is like, you know, when we go to the toilet, we're expelling um, undigested, uh, you know, food like plant matter, fiber. Um, and, and, and so at, at any one period of time, you might have, and, and this varies depending on your habitual fiber consumption. Um, but, but in our experience, in terms of how much weight people lose from adopting a low fiber diet, you know, it seems that 
people are storing one to two, maybe a little bit more uh, percent of their body mass in undigested, um, you know, food stuff sitting in their gut at any one time. So this is wow. weight loss that we can take advantage of. Um, and and you know, in the past, a lot of people will make use of um, like laxatives or bowel preparation formulas to just blast it out. Um, alternatively, people just don't eat for three three days or so, you know. And if you don't eat, you kind of pass all that's in your gut, um, and and then you're left empty. Um, the disadvantage to all of this, of course, is that number one, a bowel preparation formula or a laxative um, doesn't feel great. Um, and, and like for an MMA fighter, if you've got about 30 hours between weighing and competition, maybe you recover before then. But certainly for the Olympic combat sports that are weighing in the night before competition or the morning of competition, you don't want to be taking a laxative, you know, six hours before you compete. Um, so a smarter way is just to adopt a low fiber diet. And so we've, you know, there's some kind of indirect uh, evidence in, in some of the work that we've done. Uh, and then also in the clinical literature, looking at our low fiber diets versus bowel preparation formulas. And it seems you can get the same weight loss um, and um, cleansing of the bowel from the adoption of like a two to four days of a low fiber intake as you would from taking a bowel preparation formula or a laxative. So, um, so, so yeah, so that's one thing. So we've talked about kind of the water manipulation, um, and then we talked about like the bowel, um, bowel emptying via a low fiber diet. Um, and then the last bit is the, the glycogen depletion. So, you know, just avoiding carbohydrates um, while, while still persisting uh, in training. And so this is the way that we do it just to kind of throw this all together. Depending on how far off weight the fighter is and what their kind of taper looks like, we'll kind of start the official um, weight cut you know, anywhere from kind of seven to nine days out. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing that we do is um, is just cut carbs. So we might, and again, you know, the, the research says that maybe you can deplete glycogen in a couple of days, like, you know, I mean, maybe even in a day if you're going to, you know, do uh, several hours of, you know, endurance exercise. But the thing is, these guys are tapering in that last week, and we don't really want to be encouraging extra exercise um, if we can help it. Um, so, so, yeah, so, so we'll essentially do low carb or, or close to no carbs for, you know, it, the earliest we would do it is probably seven to nine days out. Some guys will push it up until, you know, three or four days before because their weights are tracking pretty well. Yep. Um, and, and during this time, you know, it's uh, a lot of like high fiber foods and, and high water content foods, this sort of stuff to, to help the athlete feel full. And we can actually increase the fat intake in this stage. So when we're no longer kind of targeting those fat losses. So we can actually have them eating uh, to maintenance, maybe even higher. So often it's very counterintuitive to people that during the weight cut, this is the first time during their fight camp they've actually been adequately fueled in terms of calories, um, and that's because we're no longer targeting um, body fat losses. So, you know, we're getting rid of the, the carbohydrate stores, um, and then uh, maximum four days, minimum kind of two days, but, you know, average about three days out, we're going to cut fiber. Um, and, and so we, we cut fiber, um, and essentially what the diet ends up looking like then is if you're not taking in any fiber and any carbohydrates, it's kind of a, um, in lieu of a better term, like a keto-looking diet, you know, mm -hmm. or a, um, I guess, like a modified Atkins or something like this. It's just high protein, high fat, um, and, and a lot of fat. And with our athletes in Shanghai, we, we've tried to, you know, get the kind of one-size-fits-all approach where, you know, instead of giving everyone a specific super prescribed diet, which maybe they will or won't follow, we just kind of want to give them guidelines. So we're just saying, don't eat this, eat this. And we actually encourage them to eat a lot of fat. So, you know, the amount of nuts and peanut butter and stuff these guys are eating, I um, mean, that last, in that last couple of days. <laughs> they must love it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then 
the final um, thing is is getting rid of the water. So um, so with some of our guys, maybe they lose three to four percent of their body mass from cutting carbs, maybe one to three percent from cutting fiber, um, and then whatever's ever's left, they have to sweat. And so we'll um, they will. Uh, cut fluid completely for about 24 hours before weighing um, and then they're going to do a sweat um you know using whatever method they prefer so whether it's a sauna or a hot bath um a lot of the athletes in china like to work it off so they'll like throw on the sweatsuits and jog on a treadmill for a bit we try and discourage that like we don't mind them doing a little bit um but you know you certainly don't want somebody trying to run off three or four kilos um when there's easier ways to do it um so, so that's kind of our our approach and to kind of put it all together as well, like the, the amount that we like guys to lose is about 10% of their body mass through acute means. If they're 10% above their weight division, you know, seven to nine days out, we're pretty happy with them and that we can do it all acutely. And it's not, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not worried about them. When they get get above that, when they're 12% above their weight division, seven to nine days out, we're starting to get a bit worried. And with females, you know, we could probably talk for a long time as to why this is the case, but it seems to be, that those recommended um, percentages above weight division should be dropped by one or two percent. So ten percent for for a male seems to be a lot easier than ten percent for a female. So we'd probably rather the girls be about eight percent. And so that's the best practice. We can talk about some of the, um, uh, you know, uh, more harmful methods that people use if you like. But I think I've walked on for a bit, so you let me know. <laughs> no, no worries. Well, listen, in terms of the females with having that lesser eight you know, percent range. You know, in your opinion, any particular reasons why that would be lower in females than men? Yeah, I mean, I th like, um, so generally females are not going to be as lean as males, and therefore they're not going to be carrying as much muscle mass um, at, at a given weight. So, and, and we know that muscle is water, so there's less water for them to lose. Also, they're probably um, storing less glycogen, given the fact that um, you know glycogen makes up a certain percentage of um, of uh, kind of skeletal muscle weight. So, so right there, you've got kind of um, you know uh, total body water content and total glycogen content. Um, and then also, females tend to have higher or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're, the onset of sweating doesn't occur until later in a uh, you know kind of um, thermally challenging environment mm -hmm. um and their, their sweat rates are lower as well so so even just those factors before you even get into the hormonal um you know differences which, which certainly could play a role um that in, in my mind would easily explain one to two percent of their body mass tremendous and reed you've obviously done a lot of work with water loading for acute weight loss you know how does that fit into the equation of are there still aggressive water loading strategies that are used with some professional fighters is it more as you mentioned when you get that 10% range and you've hit those fundamentals leading up to, to fight night, you, you know, you should be in a good situation. How does that shake out? Yeah. Um, so, so I think of it as another tool in the tool belt and, um, and people have made weight for years without using water loading and they're going to make weight for years without using water loading. So um, I certainly don't think it's a, a mainstay of a acute weight loss um, program However, what we say to our fighters, and it is very popular in MMA, even uh, Chinese MMA, you know, it's really popular. Um, we give them a recommended water loading protocol based on the research that we publish because we know that that's safe or at least in the context that we used it because um, obviously there's a risk of hyponatremia if you're consuming all this, uh, you know, sure. extra water. Um, so, so we kind of give them those guidelines where we say maximum, you know, 100 mil per kilogram, so 70 
kilogram athlete, seven, seven liters per day. Um, and we give them that protocol just so they've got some numbers to work with. But some people don't like doing the water loading or can't do the water loading. So our message to them is like, hey, here's a protocol that you can use. Whether you, you use it or not is up to you. But what we recommend is that you keep fluid high because what we don't want is them cutting out fluid too early. Um, and thankfully, most MMA athletes, I think, get this message, but certainly like uh, boxers um, and wrestlers, there, there tends to be a culture, um, you know, to like water taper where maybe the last week, you know, they start cutting out water five to seven days out, like not completely, but they start to, you know, stepwise uh, reduce their, their fluid consumption. So our message around the water loading is that, hey, is water loading if you want to do it. If you're not going to do it, um, please keep water high until that kind of 24 to 36 hours prior to weighing. Tremendous. And, you know, obviously, if we if we stick on the topic of, of water and hydration, hydration crucial for performance, both physically, mentally, we would think with combat sports, obviously tremendously important as well. In some of the work that you've done in the past, whether we're using things like specific gravity with a urine dipstick or whether you're using other more advanced methods for assessing hydration, you know, how good or not so good are some of these methods in, in informing your practice? Yeah, um, so I think uh, urine-specific gravity certainly has utility. I don't think it's um, like I wouldn't be prescribing, uh, you know, specific fluid intake recommendations based off it, but certainly where I see the real value in our urine-specific gravity is uh, – Number one is identifying athletes that um, have a problem, uh, you know, just with hydration in general. Like if we're doing USGs all throughout a week and, you know, if some people are borderline what the kind of published guidelines would say is acceptable, maybe we don't worry about them, particularly if everything seems to be going well. But if you've got a guy who's consistently, you know, 1.03305 or, or whatever it is, you know, like definitely dehydrated consistently, um, then then that helps us identify that guy. Um but, but aside from helping us, what I think it is is really great education for the athletes. And so, you know, it just kind of gives them um, a, a number. And, and specifically the way we do it is, you know, make an Excel report for them where we have, uh, you know, colours like a uh, green, yellow, red traffic light system um, and, and gives them those colours. So if they see that they're in the red every day this week and then they start drinking a bit more and they see that uh, colour change from um, red to yellow to, to, to green, you know, it's it, – it, develops really good buying with the athlete whereas mm. maybe if you're just telling them to drink more um and then they drink more and there's you know there's there, there's no change for them in terms of the way they're, they're performing or whatever um you know it's a little bit harder to sell that message so i definitely see it as a great um education tool uh th th there's a lot of problems with it um in terms of you know actually particularly people that are kind of close to, to these cutoffs in determining whether they are dehydrated or not. And we kind of published um, a, a review paper which highlighted a lot of these concerns. So, so that's USG. Um, and then some of the better ones, of course, is like um, uh, plasma sodium, but we, we certainly don't use that in, in routine practice. But in, in terms of research setting, it's, it's, it's likely better than USG, right? Absolutely. And obviously we'll include all the links to, the, to your work here in the, in the summary notes for the podcast here and you know having worked in this in this domain for so long and and the Gatorade Sports Institute growing up as a as a fighter yourself mixed martial arts uh, BJJ and now with the UFC you know what are some of the things that you've learned whether it's from the athlete side and, and then informing the practice or, or vice versa and working with elite athletes over that time yeah I mean this is true in all sports nutrition um 
but but really really important with um with fighting sports it's you have to get buy-in you have to show these athletes that number one you're on their side you understand them you know you need to learn as much about the culture as possible i would say like there's got to be exceptions but i would say the vast vast majority of people that are successful in this space have got experience in it um and you know there's there's no better way to understand the culture of, of a sport than to to do the sport um but but aside from MMA, you know this this applies uh, across the board. You've got to get buy-in. You've got to like convince the athletes that um, you know that you know what you're on about, that you've got their interests at heart, um, and and that you know you, you you're on their side. And sometimes you know you have to let things go. You have got to pick your battles. You know you can kind of the athlete comes in with a list of 15 different supplements that you know that 14 of them are rubbish. Um, but uh, you know you've got to kind of buy. Can't throw them all away at once. Yeah, exactly. You've got to kind of. <laughs> You know, get get some wins up your sleeve with them first before you can talk to them about the supplements. And you know, like the the, the weight cutting is a really good one because you know a lot of people have got these crazy old school methods of doing it, and then you show them a more structured, um, modern approach, and you know that's instant um, feedback when they do the weight cut, and it was easier, um, and, and you know they made weight like it was just a walk in the park compared to the way they've done it in the past. That's going to get you that buy-in to then talk to them about the supplements. So that's one is that buying is very important. And then the other thing that I've learned along the way and what my PhD kind of focused on when, and what I talk about when I, whenever I speak to um, kind of up and coming nutritionists and, and dietitians in this space is uh, the need to be pragmatic. Um, and, you know, this is more so true in, in combat sports because of the, um, the, the, the weight cutting than in other sports. But, you know, there's optimal and then there's realistic. And it's like you, you've got to get the job done and you definitely, I wouldn't even say may need to sacrifice optimal. I would say in every situation, you're sacrificing what you think might be optimal in order to, to get the job done with the specific athlete in front of you. Um, and, and, you know, a classic example of this is just weight cutting in itself. Like all of the health professionals, I mean, I'm, I'm saying all that's generalizing, but, you know, a lot of the health professionals and medical boards and all this would say that weight cutting is crazy. People shouldn't do it. You should walk around at the weight that you fight at and, and, and all the rest. But, um, you know, people winning world championships in weight category sports do not walk around at their weight division. Um, and, and, and athletes know this. And there's definitely a performance benefit um, to cutting weight. Now, it's not to say that the more weight you cut, the better. Um, but certainly, if you're not cutting any weight uh, and you're competing in a sport with a, you know, window between weighing and competition of, you know, 24 to 30 hours, um, there's, you know, ample opportunity to cut and recover weight. And if you're not doing it, you're giving an advantage to your opponent. Um, so you've got to be pr pragmatic and, and understand the kind of realistic nature of, of, of what's going on. So I'd say the biggest things is uh, get buy-in with the athletes and be pragmatic. It is amazing how in uh, skill-based sports and obviously a lot of tremendous amount of skill in, in, in combat sports, that oftentimes a lot of those really talented athletes, as you mentioned, you know, for, for us in basketball, tall, great vertical leap, fast, and it, it can be tricky to build the buy-in sometimes and to get that um definitely not the ideal approach as you mentioned to trying to pick your battles and 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 lay down those foundations and be pragmatic because you really just you know, you've got to move that athlete in the right direction and uh in team sports obviously we tend to have more time in combat sports you guys are up against uh, time pressure as well um and Reed, if we talk about the evolution of research the evolution of performance in in mixed martial arts you know where do you see some of the you know without giving away any trade secrets where do you see some of the next uh best gains coming in the next five or 10 years or so? 
Yeah, so I, I had a thought about, had to think about this um, when you sent through kind of some what we've been talking about. And, um, and and in terms of the weight cutting space, something that we've been really interested in lately and we're going to continue to kind of play around with, but I'd love to see some research specifically in weight category sports coming out is our heat acclimation. So, you know, heat acclimation research has been extensively studied um, in terms of uh, team sport athletes and endurance athletes performing in the heat. Um, one of the heat acclimation uh, adaptations is the lowering of the sweat onset threshold um, and also increasing the, the the sweat rate that occurs. So what we're toying around with and having success with some athletes is um, acclimatizing them to the heat so that then when they go to do the final weight cut, they're actually cutting uh, more weight in the sauna quicker um, and with lower RPEs associated with it and things like this. But so far, there's been no research which has actually looked at it in the context of weight cutting. Um, it's all, you know, kind of performance-based. So so we want to get into that, and I'd, I'd be really interested for anybody else to get into that. The, the, the other stuff, um, the other areas of research that I see promise in is, um, number one, periodization. So, you know, periodization has been extensively studied in other sports, but looking at the integration between kind of the technical aspects of fighting and the non-technical. Um, so, you know, your S&C and your... Uh, you know, versus wrestling and boxing and, and, and this sort of stuff. Like, how do you tie it all together? And is there better and worse ways to do it? Um, and then the last kind of area that that's kind of really interesting to me and, and others that I work with is just looking at kind of uh, coaching and feedback that you give athletes and, um, you know, the way you speak to athletes and the best way to coach. Because, you know, there's a lot of kind of skill acquisition literature um, which says that, you know, random versus block practice is, is much better and, you know, other, you know, positive versus negative feedback and all this sort of stuff. Um, but if you looked at the way that a lot of combat sports coaches coach, it's probably, you know, counter to a lot of what the um, evidence base says. So to determine whether all this stuff applies to combat sports um, would be really interesting. And then to kind of take it further and look at, you know, ways to improve coaching um, in, in this space, I think would be really valuable. Amazing, Reed. Listen, I appreciate you covering out so much time today. We're going to Make sure we have all the links there to your to your research on the uh, on the page that hosts this. You know, if people want to stay connected with you with your work at UFC and some of your past research. Where's the best place for them to do so? Yeah, I'm really bad at social media, but um, <laughs> no I've, I've got an I've got an Instagram account that I rarely post anything, and that's just my name, Read Real. People can look at that. But um, in terms of the the the, the research, it's uh, probably just Google Scholar. You can just search my name, um, and also ResearchGate. I'm on as well. I've also got a uh, a Facebook page, Combat Sports Nutrition, which I don't really tend to either. So um, people can follow <laughs> all the channels that I don't don't really engage with. There you go. Follow the UFC if you want to follow with Reed. Uh, amazing, man. Listen, I really appreciate you carving out some time today and uh, look forward to, to keeping up with all the great work you guys are doing. No problem. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for the invite. It's been a real pleasure to, um, to appear on your podcast and keep up the great work. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you enjoyed the content, please subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform to show your support. Also, a special note, this summer, we'll be launching an online course centered around the work from my new book, Peak. So if you enjoyed the book and looking for a deeper dive into continuing education in performance nutrition, as well as continuing education units for strength coaches, dietitians, practitioners, then head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And sign up to our pre-sale list 
and you'll be the first to hear about when we launch this exciting course. Lastly, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, be sure to reach out on social media at Dr. Bubs and fire away with those questions and comments. Thanks for listening, folks, and see you next time. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.